Freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hello, culminators. After a very exciting sound check that amused our guest today, Lee Smith, very much, I'm going to uh, spare you the very stupid road I was going down with wordplay. Uh, introducingly, Lee is, as you are used to hearing me say, one of those people on the internet that I've known for years and who's known me for years. And this is the first time we are face to face with each other. Uh, Lee is, however, I will say it, he's at the center of things. Those who listen regularly will know that we had um, Amanda Milius on a few weeks ago. Lee is the author of the book that became Amanda's film. We'll talk about that a little bit. Um, as you know, Lee, uh, the sort of a general theme of the podcast is free expression, censorship, cancel culture. You're a reporter. You write for a number of what we might call alternative publications at this point. Uh, so obviously, you're intimately familiar. This is this is Lee right now. If you want to follow him on Twitter, Lee Smith DC. Actually, Lee, you're not in D.C. anymore, are you? No, I'm not. No, What's I moved story? out. But uh, yeah, we, we we moved out last year. It's uh, you know I, I just saw that the city is is once again under emergency measures. So we moved out of a place that is um, under a lot of pain right now because of different political exigencies and of course it's it's political leaders. So it's it's very sick and and damaged and sad place because it's a very beautiful, it's a very beautiful city and a wonderful, uh, should be a welcoming city to all Americans and people from all around the world. Right now it's a, it's a, it's a dark and, and, and bruising, ugly place with high crime and high depression. And is that really the experience that you had as a, is that, was that the vibe yeah. you were experiencing as a resident of Washington? Oh, last year? oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it started with the, it started with the COVID, uh, with the COVID lockdowns, and I guess um, that was March, <laughs> with the two weeks to flatten the curve. And my concern was is that this will lead to, this cannot help but lead to social unrest in, in major American cities. And I was only surprised it took so long that it, it finally erupted with the George Floyd riots, uh, the nationwide George Floyd riots. But yeah, certainly I was. I was um, looking at that, looking at that for a while. So it happened, and then um, my family, uh, we decided it was a good time to leave. It's a, it's a not America is not only a great country; it's a big country too, and there's lots of wonderful places to live. And whenever I hear friends, and I grew up in New York City, whenever I hear friends now from New York or Washington or family living on the, on the West Coast, they say, you know, it's a it's a big country. You can live a normal life in, in other places uh, in, uh, across America, and, and you should. And not only on the edges, 
The only it's not yes. as if the only alternative to New York is Los Angeles. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Or as we were just talking about Chicago, which has become uh, where I spent three years in law school yeah. in the in, in the mid to late 80s and which was probably the peak of livability for Chicago. I think things started yeah. to really go downhill after that. So it's I, hugely sad. I, I mean, these are these are these are great places. These are our great American cities. And to see them and to see them on their knees like this, it's it's depressing. I, I, I assume it's depressing even for Americans who, who didn't grow up in cities. I mean, again, you know, people who would come to visit Washington to see the monuments, to stand in front of the White House, whether it was Barack Obama or Donald Trump, who was the inhabitant of the White House. I mean, it was a marvelous thing to see people come from all over the country and all over the world to say, wow, this is this is where it all happens. And and, and now these are very different environments. It really was. I mean, yeah, I mean, Washington, uh, maybe it's, you know, I'm just not cynical enough, uh, but, you know, certainly you know, when I had the privilege of appearing before the United States Supreme Court, it, mm. listen, they built those buildings to inspire awe and they work. Yeah, they were. And yeah. when I, I, I was privileged to attend the uh, the, the social media um, window dressing meeting that mm. uh, Trump had two years ago in, in July at right. the White House. Yeah, I'd never that. been to the White yeah. House before. Have you ever been to the White yeah. House? I've been to the White House, but I, I I wasn't at that meeting. It looked great and fantastic and a lot of fun. And uh, um, yeah, but but I mean those uh, again to walk into the to walk into the um, you know all the executive office building, um, you know to walk through the White House. I mean yeah, these are these are marvelous places. This is our American our American legacy, and we enjoy sharing it with the rest of the world. And right now, what's happened is again. It's under the control of a of a very dark political force, of a political force that I think many of us had thought would would never uh, exist in this country. But it does, and it controls many things. Now you are you're too good of a writer and journalist to have majored in journalism. That's nice. Yeah. Oh yeah. No. I'm guessing yeah. right. Correct. Yeah. Tell me a little I, about the, pre, the pre-journalism background yeah. and experience. Yeah, well, I mean, my, my, my father uh, is retired now, but he was a journalist. My grandfather was in media. My great-grandfather was, uh, he was the main, uh, the main type man at the New York Daily News. Wow. Moved from, moved from Indiana to the New York Daily News. So, yeah, so. Did he work in know, the Daily News, it, in, the, in the Daily Planet, in the Daily News building on, uh, yeah, oh yeah, on, yeah, on 34th yeah. Street? Because I used to work in that building. Really? Yeah. My father tells me that there's a small plaque around where the typesetters yes. sit uh, commemorating my, uh, my great-grandfather, Hal oh. Smith. So, yeah, so cool. there's a, uh, you know, so my, my family's been involved in it for a while. So, I understand how the press is, has changed. In you grew up ways among ink-stained ink wretches. Ab- absolutely, yes. My father worked at, you know, worked at Newsweek and uh, Fortune magazine, and uh, so yeah. So I, 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 I mean, it's a family trade. I know it pretty well, and I've seen how seen how things have changed over the years. And I know that what we have right now, what we call the media right now, is not. Um, is not historically what many of us grew up with in the 20th century or even at the beginning of the 21st century. That things have changed, things have changed profoundly. And we're not talking about, 
uh, simply the political disposition of the press, which was always left-leaning. And that's where I started, in fact, in, in, in my career as a journalist, I, I worked at the Village Voice um, in, in, in Greenwich Village, where, where actually I grew up. My, my brothers and I grew up in Greenwich Village, and this was the late 60s and early 70s, and it was a pretty, pretty wild time. And, uh, you know, so the press has always been liberal, and I, and I know that, and I understand that. Were you with the and, voice? Uh, what we're looking at. Were you with the voice when they started, um, when they published the uh, atom bomb instructions, or is that a little after your time? Uh, that, what, no, I, I, I came after that, but you know, the, uh -huh. the, 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 the atom, the atom, the atom bomb issue is very interesting. And I wrote about this when I was working more on Middle East stuff. And, you know, I was writing about the Iran nuclear deal. Oh, right. And yeah. the, uh, yeah, the Obama administration kept saying stuff like you can't, uh, you can't get rid of the knowledge to make a nuclear bomb. You can't bomb the knowledge away. Once you figured out how to do it, uh, you can do it. It's like, well, yes, this is, of course. I, a friend of mine, uh, one of my colleagues at Tablet says, you know, I, I, says, I have the instructions how to make a nuclear bomb in, in my home. I could, I could, you know, I could run all of Brooklyn with a nuclear bomb. The problem is I don't have uh, the facilities, right? That's the difficult thing. The facilities, the, uh, the, the ability to, uh, the industrial facilities to be able to manufacture, not just the bomb, but also the tools that go into making a bomb. Mm -hmm. This is very different. The Iranians were not able to do that until the Obama administration made it possible for them to do that, and which the Biden administration, that's the deal the, the, um, the Biden administration wants to reenter. So sorry for the digression. It's not I'm a digression. Happy you brought that up. I was like <laughs> talking about that. I mean, you know, I remember when I was in high school, we had a guy, a Princeton grad come in and say, yeah, I figured out how to build a nuclear bomb. So that that's not the tough part. Knowing how to do it, Ron. If you and I, I mean, given given a couple of hours, and we could call <laughs> friends on the phone, I'm sure we could put one together ourselves. Or yeah, the that plans might be one, for it. That guy might might be uh, one of my friends. In fact, he already figured it out a long time yeah. ago. Yeah. So so you 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 grew up in a so you, so you were in a position to answer a question that I always ask, and I think I know okay. the answer, and I think you answered yeah. it already. In fact, which is. Do we just know more now about how we're being misled or yeah. are we being misled more by yeah. the media or the press? Right. What do you think? Um, oh, I, I mean, I, I, I have a, a, my thesis is that the nature of the press changed profoundly because the financial model of the press collapsed with the advent of the Internet. I was at the Village Voice. Um, you know, the Village Voice used to charge a dollar. Uh, and I was at the Village Voice when ownership said, no, we're going to give it away for free. I remember at the time they're competing against things like Craigslist and other things that were appearing on internet. I mean, the way the Voice made money was through its classified advertising. And this, of course, was the same with places like the New York Times, the New York Post, uh, the New York Review of Books. They made money through classified advertising. And the Chicago so Reader was given out for free, which was the equivalent in Chicago of the of the right. voice. Right. And so what did that do? I mean, that 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 told people right away that the information was useless. That wasn't only bad for the journal or was what was what was actually worthless. It was of no <laughs> economic value. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so that was bad for the journalist, first of all, and then for the audience too. So I'm like, yeah, this is, you know, it's not, it's not worth you paying anything for it. So we see people 
you know, we've seen people still struggling with appropriate financial models. But what happened was that once that financial model collapsed and it was replaced by the internet, so the press became something very different. The financial, I mean, remember what happened with the financial collapse. I mean, newspapers closed all around the country. There were people, there were people who actually knew what they were doing as reporters, as editors, they were fired. And one of the big things that happened was the the really important but very, very expensive uh, units, journalistic units, for instance, uh, foreign bureaus, um, investigative teams. These are very, very expensive to run. So newspapers, magazines all said, forget it, even fact checking. Right. All these are expensive units. So they said, forget it. What did they do? They brought in instead political operations. And this is what Fusion GPS, Fusion GPS is, you know, the, the famous producers of the Steele dossier. So by definition, then the press incorporated political operations because all of these oppo research firms are paid by political interest, whether it's the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, whoever it is, they incorporated this as part of their model. So I'm throwing up on the screen your book, The Plot Against right. the President, which I referred to obliquely earlier. You. you mentioned this was your previous book, of course. You're now yeah. the, the, the very coup. sad and unfortunate um, next, yeah. next step in the process. Um, yeah. And I, I want to talk about those a little bit later, but you mentioned the steel dossier. And yeah. I, I noticed on your feed today uh, a lot of excitement about what uh, the Durham investigation is doing. And yeah. there's lots to talk about, but you can get that yeah. anywhere. And I, I, the fact is, it, it's fascinating to me that you and uh, Amanda and those working with you have been able to get this message out at all at this point. Yeah. Are your books available on Amazon? They are. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. And you know they 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 did uh, the the books have done very well and I'm I'm very happy to have had such a you know to have such a great audience and and people who you know who appreciate who appreciate the books and of course I'm hugely appreciative of uh, of, of Amanda and the work that her team did putting together that movie which is just amazing I mean I always say whenever I see I mean I've seen the movie several times now but I've seen the trailer dozens of times but whenever I see the trailer I'm like. God, that looks so good. I can't wait to see it. It's really fantastic. And Amanda is just, you know, Amanda is, is a fantastic person, a, a, a genius filmmaker, um, you know. And so all of all of the work that she's done, not just, you know, not, not just with the plot against the president, the, the movie, but I mean, all of the work that she's done is tremendously important for uh for all of our audiences and and for the country yeah there we there it is there it goes you always watch it one more time right yeah you're you're gonna see me get really excited about it it is and you know it 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 is hard to believe that we even that this was reality and that we lived through it yeah i mean it's so on it's so unreal it's so beyond you know right we grew up as we were kids during the watergate era yeah and we were sold a certain bill of goods about the relationship between government and the what we'll call the media today. It used to be called the press yeah. when you were, and law enforcement and the people. Right. 
are the changes that you're describing, the economic changes, are they responsible for the distortion the world where we have um, a James Comey? Yeah. Or there, there are other forces at work also, as obviously. Oh yeah, no. I, 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 there, there are other forces as at, at work, and I, I, you know, I don't want to get too, uh, too carried away, but I think that a lot of the forces are, are, are spiritual as well. I mean, I, I think one of the things that one of the things that I've argued for the last couple of years is that our, our, uh, the fight here, the struggle is not primarily political, right? If you look at the different things that that they've been, that let's take the FBI for instance. I mean, clearly we're looking at a politicized uh, government bureaucracy. Right, it was tar- weaponized to target uh, a Republican president and his aides. But if you look at the other things the FBI has done, uh, for instance, with the uh, Larry Nassar case, this was the the, the, the U.S. Olympic team, uh, uh, the gymnastics team. I mean, and the FBI went in there. One one of the lead agents went in there and was basically speaking with the U.S. Olympic Committee and saying, "Well, you know, hey, I, you, you've got this great you've got this great job on offer." And and the idea was, I can make your troubles go away if you put me in line for this great job. I mean, I mean that's disgusting. Right. I mean, we're talking about I mean, young girls who were, uh, you know, little girls, you know, about, who, who, who were assaulted by, by this, you know, by this cretin. And here's an FBI agent and he's, and he's trying to get a job. So that, that, that's very important in the sense that it shows the corruption is not primarily political. It's, it's something else. It's a moral a, rot. But, but I mean, isn't it even a sort of moral rot? Let's say that the FBI no. didn't purposely ignore all the leads with respect to all the terrorist attacks that we later found out they had leads on. Let's assume right. like reasonable down the middle Americans that that was incompetence and not and not purposeful yeah. malfeasance. That's a kind of moral rot as well. And it's a moral rot oh, yeah. that comes from a lack of accountability. No one right. is ever punished or disciplined. How do we get to that right. world where there's no, there's zero accountability for performing your professional duties? Yeah, um, because I think because they're all covering for each other. If you, I, I, I like to use historical examples, right? If you look at history, I mean, didn't name didn't go that far back in history, but if you look at powerful people within regimes, right? And if someone blows it, if someone makes a big mistake. Right. The regime understands you have to get rid of that person. Right. Or you have to push that person aside because that person will bring down the entire regime. Right. What you don't want is you don't want uh, you don't want the public. You don't want the citizenry um, going against because the citizenry is always larger than the elite. Right. Just in terms of numbers, it's always much larger. So you have to protect your own legitimacy and you do that by getting rid of by getting rid of people who who make errors all the time who make mistakes but that doesn't happen anymore in the united states instead what they understand is exactly the opposite it's like well that person is screwed up really badly but if we try to take him down if we try to move him aside pulling out that one piece will collapse the entire house of cards anthony fauci is a perfect example of this right i mean this guy has gone from failure to failure for close to four decades now and if you look at if, if you look at the 
COVID response, I mean, the way I see it, I'm actually working on a long piece on this for tablet. The COVID response is, 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 is effectively a cover-up for, you know, for, for Fauci's failures, for his failed biodefense program. But this is happening across the board, right? You should get rid of James Comey. You should get rid of John Brennan. Move these people aside. Bring in someone competent. But what you talked about, the failures of the FBI, we all talk about, oh, well, 9-11, uh, it was the firewall between the FBI and the CIA that was responsible for 9-11. So we had to break that down and we had to create a new uh, agency, the Department of Homeland Security. That's nonsense. What happened was, uh, I mean, the, the, the Department of Justice, I, you can look it up in the Inspector General's report. What happened was is that a number of the different terrorists, two of the different Saudi terrorists were staying at the home of an FBI informant, right? It was bad work. People should have paid, people should have been fired. Instead, what happens? Robert Mueller is hired as FBI director the week before 9-11, and he uses 9-11 as a platform to bring the FBI into the intelligence community to get more money, more prestige, more power. And that's the way our government is going right now. I don't know. It's hard to say exactly when it went off the rails, but that's what happens. People use failure to take more power. No one is held accountable. Is, would, would you agree that part of what part of the reason that happens is that government, it, government has gotten so big? and has so many responsibilities and is so integrated into so many types of activities that everyone has a stake in the system, including people who cry, who cry about what one part of the system is doing to them without sufficiently yeah. appreciating that, again, pulling out that thread will undo yeah. their subsidy or will undo their, you know, whatever benefit they're getting from yeah. The one hand that's washing oh, oh, the other. Oh, yeah, I, I definitely. I mean, because Washington is a big network. <laughs> and if you pull at one, pull at one thread, then the whole thing is likely to, to come apart. But there's something else as well, which I, you know, again, I grew up in New York and I, I saw moving to Washington. Again, I love Washington. It's a beautiful city and I hope it returns to uh, normalcy and even more so its beauty. But, you know, Donald Trump's famous line when he was talking about uh, when he was talking about different people <laughs> crossing, crossing our southern border, saying they're not sending, our, they're not sending their best. Look, we have to be honest that most of the people who go into the federal government are not our best, right? You don't Whether think these Jan Democrats Jan or Republicans? Janet Napolitano isn't the uh, the shining yeah. example of yeah. the the best America has to offer the world. I mean, talk about someone who has spent decades failing upward and upward right. and upward and getting wealthier and wealthier and more powerful. Right. That's a yeah. terrifying. That's why they go. That's why they go. <laughs> that's why they go there. These are not people who are going out. You know what? I'm going to start my own business. Here's what America needs. I want to be my own boss. I want to do this. I want to do this. They're fundamentally bureaucrats. And that's what we need to understand about all of these different people. They're fundamentally bureaucrats. You can tell that walking down the street. They don't want to be, they don't want to stand out, right? And that's why they dress the way they do. That's why, that's why fashion and style and taste in Washington is absolutely appalling. People from the rest of the country who go there, 
you know, realize that these are these are these are gray people. They're they're you know they're they're it's terrible, right? But it's the same thing when it comes to matters of um, when it comes to matters of intellect, matters of ingenuity. These are people who know how to operate within bureaucratic frameworks. That's who they are. And was it just too big of a dragon for Donald Trump to slay? Was that really at the end of the day what it really why he couldn't break that? Yeah. I think that's a large part of it, but but I mean there there are it is also surprising because uh, 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 again the, the former president was uh, you know he, he was a man experienced in the world of business and he knew how things work. I, I mean there should have been a time when he should have punished someone very badly and very publicly, right? Whether it was James Comey, whether it was James Mattis, I, I mean again the bureaucratic mindset is not so tough to figure out if you're getting a hard time from your number one, then go to the number two, right? Call in someone who's working under Mattis because these people are ambitious. Who wants to undermine Mattis and be the number right. one? So you go to the number two and you work to destroy the number one. It, 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 wasn't, it, it wasn't an impossible task. And at a certain point when people started to realize that Donald Trump was making a lot of noise on Twitter, and when he was making a lot of noise at rallies about the deep state and about how bad people were, but wasn't doing anything about it. But when he didn't kneecap anyone himself, they realized they could get away with virtually anything they liked. And that was a disaster, a disaster for the country, not just not just for the not just for the Trump presidency. So let's talk now in that. Let's segue to the permanent coup, because yeah. we, we have a little bit of a a paradigm change here because you're talking about, yeah. you're, you're talking about these people who are gray, who are apparatchiks. Yeah. I mean, are, are we entering into sort of a Brezhnevian era in America now? Because I was about to say that, well, those people don't ultimately tend to lead. They tend to be led, but yes. I mean, we don't even really know who's leading the country. Now we know it's, and we, yeah. won't, we know who it isn't. Uh, right. Oh, yeah. I, th I think it's past Brezhnev. I, th I mean, I think we're all we're, we've gone full on drop off here. Right. I mean, that's that's who, <laughs> that, that, I mean, that's who Joe, Joe, Joe Biden is. I, I mean, you know, I, I, I've heard people throw that line around. But I mean, that that's you know, he, he's not even an empty suit. I, I mean, he's a, he's an algorithm or, or something at this point. I have friends who say, yeah, the problem with Major the dog is Major the dog realized it wasn't his master. Something happened to his master and the dogs always understand. So that was the problem with the dog. So Joe Biden is not there. Someone no, else is there. Right. So, th so that's a, an extraordinary state of affairs is that, you know, at least when Obama was president, you had a person you could point to. And even if he wasn't really doing the heavy lifting, which he wasn't, he, he was still the man. Uh, well, let me ask you yeah. something. Based on the work you've done for, in, the, for the, in the permanent coup, a lot of people on Twitter, usually my, some of my best anonymous friends who have the, some of the strongest opinions, yeah. they like to blame everything that's happening or not happening on Obama. I even had someone mm -hmm. assert last night when somebody was, was one, so one of my fellow lawyers was asking, mm -hmm. who's paying for all the legal help in connection with some aspect of the, the squid. So I said, oh, 
the reason that's not traceable is because Obama's paying for it. Now, that's the dumbest thing I've heard in my life. No. O- Obama doesn't pay for anything. Uh, but right. Yes, the, right. Yeah, right. How much do you think Obama is pulling the strings at this point in, in within the permanent coup? Maybe yeah. it's in the book. And if I just would have looked it up in the index, yeah. I'd know the answer. <laughs> it's only a podcast. Well, I don't even, even guys on TV don't read all the books. <laughs> Um, well, I, I mean, I, I argue that he uh, he's playing a very large role here. And, you know, I, I don't I don't think I would have believed that. I don't think I would have said that. I mean, even the, even though that Barack Obama is the first president since Woodrow Wilson, who was desti- decided to stay in Washington, D.C., that's a that's a pretty big deal. And remember, Wilson stayed because he'd had a stroke. Right. He couldn't move. So why is Obama there in, in, in Colorado still? Well, I, again, the surprising thing that we saw during, the, uh, during the, the tail end of the Trump administration was that Obama kept sticking his hand up, right? Obama, when it came to the Michael Flynn case, right? And Barack Obama basically leaked uh, instructions on how to continue to go after Michael Flynn. That was, that was, that, that was frankly astonishing. Um, I think different things. I think that I think that Obama openly pushing on Twitter for the for mail in voting. Um, and this started in April. This started in April of 2020. So, yeah, I, I, I and, and, and but that's, a, I, I that's opinion leadership, though. Right. I mean, it's unusual. But then again, yeah. there's no pushback from the media anymore. And there's right. not even pushback oh, yeah, from the supposed sure. opposition party. There's certainly no one in his part. You know, there was a time when a party like the Democratic Party would say, listen, we've got people on the bench now. you got to be quiet, ex-president, because yeah. we need to raise the profile of young X, Y, and Z. They got nobody yeah. but, but, you know, octogenarians yeah, and right. incompetence. That, that's like, the issue. Right. So for, I get that part, but I'm talking about the about the the conspiracy stuff, the stuff behind the scenes. Oh, what do you think? Obama, um, so much, not so much, less than people think, more than people think. Uh, well, I don't, I don't, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to tell what people think, right? I mean, there are different parts of Twitter. What does Lee Smith think? think? That, you know, <laughs> what uh, does Lee think? Oh, no, no, no. I think that Barack Obama is playing an enormous role here, you know, and yeah. I think that after, I mean, after, um, after Hillary Clinton lost, I, I hate to I hate to break the news to her, but after she lost the 2016 um, campaign, you know that's when you see the transformation of RussiaGate. Before the election, it was a it was a campaign ploy, and they were spying on candidate Donald Trump. Now Hillary Clinton has nothing to do with it after the election. After the election, it's Barack Obama. It's Barack Obama who tells John Brennan to write a secret uh, classified assessment about Russian interference. And of course, the key finding of that assessment is based on the dossier that Vladimir Putin wanted Donald Trump to win. So just that in itself says that at that point, after the election, Barack Obama decided to, uh, to raise his hand and to take a very active role uh, if not the uh, supreme leadership position in the anti-Trump opposition, you played a very, very active role. Now, I mean, just for what it's worth, completely off topic, but it's my show. All right. Uh, when, yeah. <laughs> when, when I heard that that was supposed to be what Putin wanted, that's when I knew it was false. Yeah. 
because yeah. it made no sense yeah. whatsoever. But back on track, what does Obama have to gain? He's been to the summit. Yeah. He is an incredibly wealthy man for a man who's never really worked a day in his life. Right. Uh, or for anyone that matter. Yeah. Um, is it a love of power? Is, is that really enough to animate you? Because he didn't seem to be all that. Was he what, all that interested yeah. in exercising it actually when he was president? Well, I, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Because one of the ways that I look at it is, well, let's say, for instance, uh, let's say without going too far out of the conspiracy theory, let's say Barack Obama is playing a very is playing a very big hand here, right? And we look at how incompetent the Biden administration looks. I mean, they 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 can't get. I mean, their their initiatives are nuts, right? But a lot of the things that they, the legislation they want to pass, they can't get through because they're people in their own party and not just Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. I mean, there, there are a number of Democratic senators who are hiding behind Manchin and Sinema and who didn't want anything like the Build Back Better uh, you know, bill. Um, so if you look, this looks very strange, right? Well, how is it possible that Barack Obama is running this? Because he was all about no drama Obama and everything ran so smoothly then. But if you look back and look at what happened during Obama's eight years, what was accomplished? Right. Barack Obama had the press on his side. That's what Barack Obama had going for him. His accomplishments are um, his accomplishments are, are, are virtually nil. Uh, even, you know, even. And this is why he said things like when Biden was coming to office. This is why he said talked about how it's very important to finish off things that we weren't able to finish when, uh, you know, when I was there. So I, I think that's the I think that's the main thing. It's not just about exercising power for the sake of exercising power. It's getting things done. They weren't able to finish. But remember, they assume like virtually everyone else that Hillary Clinton, even if they didn't like Clinton that much, that Clinton was at least going to be um, a, a caretaker and make sure that things like the Iranian nuclear deal got, uh, I know, that, that these were solidified and that the Iranians would eventually get their bomb within a decade. So I, 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 I think that's the big thing. You know, it's, it's legacy. How's that? Why do they want? OK, so which, which is an extraordinary answer, because, yeah. I mean, we yeah. I, I don't think it's meaningful to say, well, gosh, uh, Barack Obama is an yeah. egomaniac. Anyone who becomes president is an egomaniac. You have I mean, oh, you know. absolutely right. They're all they have to. You have to be a sociopath. I mean, to even <laughs> want to run for president. I mean, you know, who, who else would do such a thing? You know, you, right. can you imagine coming home and telling your wife, honey, we're running for president? And, and I mean, we do see that people who have been president find it hard to give up the power they find it you know uh, you know it, it's it's something that is difficult to give up so here he gets to exercise it and he can still take as many selfies as he wants that's not going to yeah. change um a lot of upside yeah but do you think they just guessed wrong at just how bad kamala harris was going to be um uh, no i think that they knew they had a pretty i mean no, Obama had been talking about Kamala Harris. I mean, he had a crush on her. He expressed that pretty clearly. I think that they just thought that uh, that Kamala Harris was just was just fantastic, and that people. I mean, remember remember how they judge things, right? I mean, I I do believe that this that the progressives have a very different idea about political efficacy than normal human beings do, right? You don't even have to be uh, efficient if you're a if you're a candidate of color. 
that in itself makes you uh, makes you an impressive figure. And I think that they looked at at Harris. I, I I assume that Obama looked at Harris as the as the female version of Barack Obama. So no, I don't. I don't. I, and remember all of the remember all of the money, all of the Obama money was was going into was going into back Harris in 2020. I mean, that's where they were directing all that money. And there was I think you're saying yes, how bad Harris was. I think your answer is yes, they did guess they figured she had all the necessaries. And all she had to do was show up and not suck. Right. And they forgot that (laughs) that was the one thing she absolutely knows how to do. Yeah, is suck. So yeah, there you go. But that didn't matter to them. That didn't matter to them. Because remember, their whole thing is the whole idea with the progressives is it's like, the problem is you, you don't get it, right? And if you don't get it, we're going to have to shove it down your throat, I guess, because we know what we're doing. The problem is you. The problem is the rest of the country. That's always been their idea. So do they, do they objectively now think Harris sucks? I'm certain that they look at Harris's polling, aside from the non-lunatics in the White House, is like, what is wrong with America? What, we've told you what's wrong with America. Messaging. It's racist. It's sexist. It's homophobic. Right. We got to sell our message better. Our messaging has been. So listen, unbelievably, or maybe not unbelievably, we have gobbled up 40 minutes here. So my question for you is, besides buying the permanent coup. Yes. And reading it. And then and not lending it to anyone, but making people buy. And by the way, you should be (laughs) very clear. You should lend it out. When I asked you if the book was available on Amazon, of course, I meant, unlike the story that Amanda had with the distribution mm-hmm. on Amazon, where, you know, ultimately it dried up because they realized right. that they were carrying, they're not doing that with books quite, yeah. not all books. And you also were an right. established author beforehand. You'd written before on less ideologically, uh, well, in a less ideological time, first of all. Yeah. But what do you think? Is it, what, what kind of things should we be doing besides supporting independent journalism? Or is that, yeah. well, is that, is that the main thing or are there more important things? Well, get, look, get lots I mean, I of think jabs? Actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I actually think it's a fantastic time for independent journalism. I mean, you know, between Julie Kelly and Darren Beatty, what they've been writing on January 6th is, um, is amazingly important work. And to be a journalist, to be a writer, I mean, it's a tremendous time. I mean, you know, for me, Russiagate was, you know, until we got to January 6th and now, and now the, the COVID, what I call the COVID cover up until that, I mean, Russiagate was just one of the biggest stories, you know, one of the biggest stories ever. And, and none of them wanted it because they were all playing the other side. They were part of that operation. So there's a lot of journalists out there who are doing, you know, who are doing fantastic work. I mean, the way that different people are writing about uh, about COVID on on Twitter and Substacks and coming out with different books. One of my colleagues at Tablet Magazine, I like promoting his books. It's it's really interesting. A guy named Michael Sanger, um, but who's been writing about, you know, how he understands. Um, he understands the purpose of COVID, how the Chinese Communist Party has used this. The name of the book is called Snake Oil. So again, I, it's a tremendous time and there's tremendous amounts of information out there for, because one of the things that we've learned over the last few years, even with the, the end of the, of the prestige press, 
like the Washington Post and the New York Times. There are Americans who not only want and need information, as we see Twitter, Ron, you, you and I both see it, but there are people who are producing information on Twitter, like you, not just people like you and me, but there are people who are not professional journalists at all. They have no relationship to journalists, that, but they know how to find documents. They know how to read documents. And I've learned so much from them over the it last is, four years. It, it's, it's been really a, amazing. astonishing what people are doing socially right. and independently. And the, the fact is that for all the complaining we do, and I do plenty of it about right. censorship on the major media, yeah, the vast majority of people can get the job done if they stay within the lines. Right. Well, even, even then, I mean, I think it's a, a terrific mistake for them to censor information. I mean, historically, we know that books and information that get censored, whether we're talking about whether we're talking about James Joyce's Ulysses, whether we're talking about Nabokov's Lolita whether we're talking about Samizdat material and the former Soviet Union, the information that is censored, that comes to play a special, nearly sacred role in the lives of people. So, I mean, it's terrible that people don't have easier access to information, but once the state, once uh, oligarchs, once the establishment tries to crush information, that information is still out there. And now it's even more important. So. It's a profound mistake on their point, on, on, on their part. Every time they will try to censor someone's information, that information will become more, more and more valuable. And they'll understand what that information means. So again, it's a profound mistake on their part. My wife thinks I'm, off, I'm often Pollyannish, that I'm too optimistic about things. But uh, you know, just looking at the broader historical sweep, I'm hugely optimistic. We're going through a very hard time right now, a very dark time. But you know, this this is this is a a, a great country with a great uh, a home to a great people. And so, yeah, of course, I'm optimistic. Fantastic. I'll I'll absolutely end on that note. Thank you so much, Lee. A real pleasure to talk to you in face Thank to you face, as much, I said Ron. again. And hopefully. You know, I, I'm always used to saying I'm going to see such and such when I get down to Washington, and I really do. Now you're in South Carolina. Yeah. Come, come down and visit. We've got a, we've got a big place. I will tell it's you. A lot of fun. I, come down I'll, and see I'll, us. I'll keep that in mind. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks a lot, yeah. and uh, I really appreciate your coming on. So long. Thank you so much, Ron. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.